Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. Someone who is really excellent, really smart, that does not mean they'll be really great at your company. Fit is so important than just in raw intelligence or raw skill. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. If you too want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. It's definitely hard to stay motivated when there's so much uncertainty in the world, 100%. So what I do is I kind of just hack my brain and I'm not perfect at it whatsoever. But for example, I saw this TED talk that talked about how when doing exercise, (laughs) it unleashes all these like natural chemicals in our brain. I can't remember what they all are right now, but it was something like dopamine. And I don't know, maybe I'll find the little TEDx snippet for you and, and play it for you. A single workout that you do will immediately increase levels of neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, and noradrenaline. So now instead of saying, you know, I got to go exercise or I should be exercising, I just tell myself like, oh, let me go get those legal drugs. (laughs) No joke. And then I find myself jump roping and and doing my best to not take myself so seriously or be so rigid about it, but find the playfulness in the things that actually do progress my life forward rather than making it a thing on the to-do list, making it more of a playfulness with life. And oh my gosh, do we all need that energy of positivity and playfulness, right? Enjoy the next episode. to bring to you our next guest from Los Angeles. Hello, Jesse. Hi, I'm so excited to join you. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Go ahead to kick things off. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm Jesse, and I run a packaging company, uh, Lumi. Lumi helps um, e-commerce brands source and manage all of their packaging in one place. So that's what I'm up to here in downtown LA. And what does that look like, managing packaging? Um, Walk us through it. Like, who's your ideal customer and how do they utilize Lumi? 
Most of our customers are e-commerce brands. So think of a lot of brands you might know about, like Parachute Home right here in LA, or Glossier in New York, um, a lot of the direct-to-consumer brands, and brands where packaging is a huge part of their experience, of the product in general, and what you as a customer experience. So a customer of ours is actually the brand. We're a B2B company, and we're disrupting this massive industry of how packaging usually operates. So our customers come to us because they can manage that whole process online from the moment they think, I need packaging to my product, to figuring out what they need, to actually sourcing it from factories all over the world, all in line in one place. So it takes a lot of the steps out. And when did you start Lumi? I actually started Lumi in 2015. It is my second business with my same co-founder. So I feel like I've been entrepreneuring for a while. I actually started in 2009, uh, but this business started in 2015. And what inspired the idea? Actually, the first business I mentioned. So I started a company right out of design school. Um, You're looking at the classic venture-backed founder, a design school dropout, <laughs> uh, dropped out of design school to start the first company, which was a product on Kickstarter that we launched. My co-founder and I were the product-based entrepreneurs who were trying to launch something and bring something to market. And we realized ourselves how hard it was to actually package and get all the physical things for our brand that we needed. That's what gave us the idea for Lumi. And have you always been from LA or did you move to LA? I am a Detroit suburbs native, um, and I've been in LA for 12, going on 13 years, so it feels like my home, but I actually grew up in Michigan. And what attracted you to move to LA? I think I was a I was a suburban <laughs> teenager uh, in Michigan, and I thought I wanted to move to a city. And I remember actually thinking as like a 16, 17-year-old, like, I'm going to move to either New York or LA. And I knew one person in LA, and I knew zero people in New York. So that helped me make my choice. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an extremely calculated uh, career move, obviously. <laughs> and when did you first get interested in technology? It was a very like iterative path. Like I, I actually was first interested in design and and like physical products, and that's what I was studying in school before I before I dropped out. Um, and and so I think that there's not a moment in time where I go, do you know what? Like I'm gonna get into a tech career. Like I think that what's healthy to remember about tech is that it's like tech for, for what, like there's always a purpose to it. So like tech for, for fashion or tech for health. Um, and so I think a lot of founders get into it because they had a passion in an area. And for me, that's definitely the case. Like I was passionate about helping companies grow, figuring out how to run a physical product business. And that led me to developing tech or packaging. You said you dropped out of school. Why did you decide to make that choice? That was a financial choice from from, like, I, I think that I wasn't like, ooh, you know, it would be cool, like being a college dropout. Because um, it is a thing, you know. <laughs> it is a thing. But but I think that part of the reason it's a thing, you know, is that there's more now than ever. Like when you hear about people doing it in the like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s or something, you go back and look at like tuition, like inflation adjusted. You're like, I don't know, those people should have stayed in school. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> but I think now, you know, like it's a massive financial commitment. So I was going into student debt to get a design degree. I think if I were studying to be a lawyer or a doctor, like the degree, you you must have the degree. You do not need the design degree to do design in the world. So at a certain point, I felt like I am now extending myself and I'd rather run a business. Like it was, it was a d- life choice. And so when you wanted to create your first company, what were your main fears or did you just feel like, let's do this thing? 
I felt like let's do this thing. But I think that when you rewind back to those moments, I think there's something important about commenting on how not profound some of those moments are. Like I, I, at the time I was a student and I decided to launch a Kickstarter campaign. One of my jokes about my co-founder and I is that um, we've been running companies together for 10 years. And my joke is that I don't think we ever decided to run a company together. We never sat down and like had a conversation like you see on TV of like, you know what, let's start a company and like, like circulate documents. We launched a Kickstarter campaign. It worked. We got customers. We had more customers. We kept growing. Like it turned into a business. And I think that's really healthy to remember. A lot of things start as projects and and you don't know if they're going to turn into a business until you give it a shot. I want to get into how you met your co-founder as well as share more about your journey with Kickstarter. First, it's such a blessing that you met a co-founder that you get along with splendidly. I know there's so many different stories about that. I've been lucky enough, like you, to have co-founders. I've had two co-founders and they're both phenomenal people. So I feel very lucky. But unfortunately, most people are not like you and me. So where did you meet your co-founder? And what do you think is that magical that magical spell that makes it a good union. And I'll share mine too. Yeah, I met Stefan at design school. So we actually were in the same class um, at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. So we met there and he we're, we're very different people. I think that for us, the recipe is that we are kind of yin-yang. Like I am very into business. I'm kind of like more of the hustler, pusher. Uh, he is very patient. Um, he's really an excellent quality-driven like product thinker. And so, you know, I will be like, let's launch it tomorrow. And he'll be like, let's launch it in six months. And then we agree to launch it in three months. Like, you know, like we, we, we agree on something more rational than tomorrow or six months. And so I think that there's, you want to find that. And I think that we also have really different ambitions in terms of what we enjoy about running a business. And so that's helpful because we really rarely step on each other's toes. The other thing that I can share though, is that, was it always just easy? Like, no, I've been working with him for 10 years. We have, it's like a marriage. You go through different phases. There's phases where you are finding your way again and phases where one person's a little bit less interested in the business than the other person. And like, you know, you watch someone grow up like, so it is not, there is no fairytale version. I like, just like how there's no fairytale romance, but you can optimize for success. I feel like the lucky thing that I had with my business partners was no matter how much we hated one another from time to time, we always respected one another and treated one another with integrity. I think it's inevitable that when you're running a company, there's really hard months sometimes. And to make it through that, you're going to end up, well, maybe you won't, but I know that we did end up like just really upset with one another, but we never, ever hurt one another. And that just solidified our, our, our friendship and our um, partnership as, as founders. I think you do need to pick someone you really respect. Um, and and th- th- this is where the analogies to like other relationships, I think, hold true. You know, there's so many different mistakes we could go over in selecting or picking a co-founder. But one that just highlights something I really like about Stefan is I respect him as a person. I think that's something that I've seen people optimize for is trying to pick someone they think they can control. Like, oh, I will be the more dominant person um, in the co-founder relationship if I pick someone who ha- is a little bit of a weaker skill set than me or a little bit y- or younger or whatever they perceive to be a weakness. But the problem with that is that um, a great co-founder relationship is built on total mutual respect. So you can't optimize for someone's weakness. And then you will also regret those weaknesses because you realize that at the end of the day, you've got to run a business and you might as well pick the strongest possible candidate, you know, to help you with that. So I, I think, you know, that that's good things to think through. 
Walk us through your experience with Kickstarter. First of all, in today, do you think crowdfunding is still a great way to launch a startup? Or is that kind of something a few years ago, 2018, but isn't as relevant anymore? Yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm kind of like a, you know, old school veteran on this because we launched a campaign in 2009 when Kickstarter was six months old. Like it was like, no one had heard of it. We were like renegades. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> yeah. And then another one in 2012 when we raised a quarter of a million dollars in 2012, which at the time was a really huge campaign. Like there was not Completely. these like multi-million dollar campaigns. My perspective on it, I think it has shifted. Like anything has novelty. Like, like there was much more novelty when I was doing it 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, even like we were mentioning, it's still very hot, um, like in, into like 17, 18. I think that now it's just another tool. Like I think of every way you could gather capital um, or launch something as a tool that you use in, um, in concert with other tools. So I think that the days of it having novelty and it just being like, I launched it on Kickstarter and that's how we got all of the attention to it is probably over a bit because the reason why is not because it's a bad method. It's a great method. It's just because it's no longer the hot new novel thing. It's just one tool in the same way that if like, you know, someone else takes venture capital and someone else goes to retail, like it's just another method. It's not like, whoa, in the same way it used to be. What did you learn after launching the Kickstarter campaign that you wish you had known when you first started? What did you learn after? Well, I mean, ironically, it really plays into what I do now. Like when I, that campaign in 2012, which was a much bigger financial one where we raised like 250K, I wish I had known like a lot of things about finance and about supply chain. Like we did a campaign for 200 and, and it was like about 260K actually. And um, I think we spent $70,000 on shipping. We had budgeted for shipping, but not $70,000. Like there's there's just so many things about um, anticipating the physical aspects of fulfilling the campaign that we were out of our depth on. I think that that really inspired me to think through like the tools that entrepreneurs need to physically plan for their businesses. And now I run a packaging company. But yeah, I, I think that was the skill set that was lacking. Like we told a great story. Uh, we had a great product. We ended up fulfilling all of our rewards. Like we, we carried through on the promise, uh, but it just was very difficult. I mean, I've heard the same thing that with every successful campaign, the campaigners, or, or I don't know what you guys call yeah. yourselves, the, the posters, like they realize, oh man, fulfilling this is a lot harder than I thought. And there's so many, and the coolest cooler went through a mm -hmm. huge backlash over mm -hmm. that. Um, there's spot, I think it's called spine flex or something like that. At least coolest cooler delivered spine flex, never delivered anybody. And you get all these haters, like, Kickstarter and Indiegogo at the fundamental level, you're not buying a product. You're contributing to someone's vision. But I think the marketing that Kickstarter and Indiegogo do is feels like you're buying a product as a consumer and there's a mismatch there. And man, does it lead to angry people. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's really been an evolution of those platforms because I think back in, you know, back when I'm talking about, it sounds like ancient history, like 2009, 10, 11, 12, there was very few people posting products like that where they were like, where it just felt like more like a pre-order. I think as soon as something feels like a pre-order, then the entire expectation set of e-commerce flows in. It's like, I'm just pre-ordering this product. I expect it on a certain date. I think what's cool about that is if you zoom out, it's just like any platform development, like the world had 
never seen that concept of let's all get together and fund the development of something together, you know, in a crowd way. And then it came on the scene and then you have the problems and you have the solutions and it's a cycle of evolving concept. But yes, it's it's really interesting to watch a, a large Kickstarter project, especially the one ones that raise millions of dollars, it's running a business whether you intended on it or not. So many people probably wonder, how did you even learn how to do it in the first place? Are you completely self-taught or was there a blog or how do you educate yourself on having a successful fundraising campaign? It is very, it is very self-taught. This is where, whether it's fundraising, uh, sorry, whether it's a Kickstarter campaign, yeah, 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 crowd, crowd, yeah, or fundraising or getting bank loans or all of these different things that you do in business. You know, there is no just like one magical book or one magical thing. There are plenty of great resources, but for me, it, it was always like, asking around, doing a lot of homework, doing a lot of reading, um, and making a lot of mistakes. Like, like I literally run a business now based on the mistakes I learned from, from the first business. Like, so I think there's this concept that like, you know, we're all doing research to avoid our mistakes, but in a weird way, like most of my mistakes in the first business are the ones that led to this business. So mistakes, you know, can have a silver lining, but it is, you know, I, yes, it is self-taught just gathering bits of information as you go. And with Lumi, give us kind of the ecosystem of your company. How many people have you raised? Where are you in the development of Lumi? We went through Y Combinator. So Y Combinator, the accelerator in Silicon Valley, we we went through Y Combinator in 2015. We raised a seed round, uh, like from venture. Uh, Then we ended up raising a Series A, uh, actually 2018. We haven't done another formal round uh, since then. We have shipped, I think we crossed the threshold of, we've shipped over 150 million units of packaging, I think, since we've we've launched. Uh, We ship, you know, quite a bit of throughput of packaging now through the platform. We're still a pretty tight team. We're sub 40 people, kind of right around, I think, 30, 37, 38, somewhere right around there. It's been a wild ride. And we service brands. Uh, now our large customers use, you know, millions of dollars worth of packaging uh, companies, some other larger e-com brands. And then we still work with some fairly young startups as well. Are you able to share how much you were able to raise in the seed and in the Series A? In our seed, I think the first raise we did was 1.6 million, in which was you know a really healthy size seed round at the time. Uh, seed rounds have kind of crept up in size uh, these days, um, but that was pretty healthy. And then the same investors uh, put in another uh, 1.3 or something along that lines as well, um, like kind of the year later. So I would I think of seed as a phase. So basically, uh, we probably raised around three million in our seed phase of the business. And then we did a $9 million Series A, and that was in 2018. And were you responsible for that, or was there someone else on your team who was leading that charge? Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. We would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you. Thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show. To contribute and donate, simply go to womenintech.fm on the upper right-hand side and click Donate, which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world. Thank you for being a part of our journey. And were you responsible for that or was there someone else on your team who was leading that charge? That's me. No, I'm responsible. My co-founder, of course, was part of that process, but I am the CEO. Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in that process, the CEO, you know, usually usually drives it. Um, I certainly was at every single pitch on every single email, um, fielding every single request and answering every single thing about the business. <laughs> Are you able to share uh, some of the brands that work with Lumi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we work with... Um, 
think brands that some folks may have heard of. Um, we work with uh, here in LA. We work with Me Undies, Parachute Home. We work with Glossier. We work with um, some fun, like you know, emerging like wine brands, like Bright Cellars, and um, like wine subscriptions are growing quite well. And in a period of staying at home, so a whole slew of like across so many different e-commerce categories. And let's talk about a little bit about fundraising. I love that you were able to raise, and it's not just so much about fundraising. This show is about showing everyone what's possible. And so I love that you led the charge on fundraising and you did it successfully. Can you share with us a bit about your journey, how you set yourself up, how you prepared yourself, some of the objections that you had to overcome? I'm hoping that listeners could walk away feeling, if Jesse can do it, so can I. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that I, I, I definitely definitely would like to jump off that, you know, to just say that I had zero experience with this. I had zero experience fundraising. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a local lawyer, you know, who did like real estate stuff. Like, like there was no background like, and I think that is important to note because I think you hear about so many founders where you learn about them and it's like, I don't know, their dad's a venture capitalist or something that makes you feel like they just had some upside. So there was nothing like that. I went to design, I went to design school and then dropped out. That's the foundation. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> And so from there, you know, I did, uh, going to Y Combinator actually was a conscious decision of trying to immerse myself in this thinking, like in this ecosystem and learning. Um, so I did learn quite a few things there. My process though, for raising for like the seed round, for instance, was really a process of you know, begging and borrowing for every different meeting and introduction I can from anyone I knew, which is just so few people like at the time when I think back, like I, I, so I'm not trying to be rude, uh, even to my like past self, but I just didn't really know anyone in tech and I didn't really know who to even call, but I would call people who even worked at companies that had raised money and ask them what they remembered from their team meetings, like just anything. Right. And then I started getting some introductions um, to to different VCs. Um, I learned a fun thing that I still use to this day, which is one of the highest leverage introductions that you can get to a VC, a venture capitalist, is from someone already in their portfolio. So if you reach out to someone they've already invested into and you build a little bit of relationship with that person, and then that person introduces you, that's a very high leverage introduction compared to reaching out to them cold. But you have to genuinely get to know that person. You can't just email them randomly and ask like, hey, can you connect? me. So I think I learned, I just started learning how that stuff works. And it led us to finding Homebrew. Homebrew is a fund that led our seed round. I mean, I, I feel like I made a ton of mistakes in my initial negotiations and just kind of being weird. I was like too protective over certain pieces of information and um, too slow to respond to certain things. Like I just, when I look back, I'm like, oh geez, like, wow, I, <laughs> I can't believe I got, you know, a deal done. But I think it really does speak to the fact that there's a lot of forgiveness to the process. Uh, you just have to you just have to not stop trying like until until you get the goal achieved. I love it. I absolutely love it. And let's talk about accelerators for a moment because we don't talk about it enough on the show. Yeah. Was going through an accelerator worth it? My answer is yes. I really enjoyed going through Y Combinator. I think that to me, I have a really, I felt, and I still feel like I had a really rational outlook on what it is and what it isn't. So I think when people, and I believe this about basically every form of fundraising, whenever I hear someone having kind of like a nightmare story about something, it's usually like maybe they had a particularly bad experience, which just can happen, right? But also, I feel like people have a misaligned set of expectations. YC is not a miracle that happens to your business. In fact, if you look at the stats, 
the vast majority of people who go through YC, their companies fold, like companies do not make it. There is no magic fairy dust that gets sprinkled on your company by going through YC. But YC as in as Y in, Combinator. Um, y Combinator. Yeah, yeah, sorry. They just that's like our shorthand. No, totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> so but there's no fairy dust to it. So you have to go in rationally. The things that you get out of it, for me personally, I felt like I was coming from going to design school, coming from running a bootstrapped company, no real connections and kind of in-depth knowledge of how Silicon Valley operates and how VC operates. And so I went, I decided like going up there, meaning up to Silicon Valley from LA for three months is like a really short way, like a really condensed way of giving myself that information. And I do not feel that I feel like that's accurate. And and I think that probably goes for a lot of accelerators, not just that one. Um, but it is about condensing the time. There is no miracle dust that sprinkles on your company. Your idea can still be bad. Your company can still be bad. Your co-founder can still not work out. Like it it it's no it's no guarantee. How do you manage your time? Oh my gosh. I feel like I've gone through so many versions of this. Now I feel like I'm in a phase finally and it feels like a feels like a, a video I'm like on a video game and I just unlocked like a new level or something but now I'm in a phase where I actually have a really great like leadership team at Lumi um like a really great VP of sales and uh, VP of engineering and stuff like that and it's just a massive leverage on my time where I can check in with them and they truly know more than me about running those areas of the business before I was able to hire those people I think that my calendar was always basically like chock a block with like you know, which is running around each aspect of the business. I try to be extremely decisive. I guess like this would be my best answer to that. I try to be extremely decisive. I try to take things that are suggested to be a one hour meeting and I ask for them to be an email that I can say yes or no to just present the idea and I'll just say yes or no. Like, like, well, at some point we all have to move on. Um, and so something I talk about internally is decisions over debate. You can debate things forever in a startup. The currency you're working with is time. Wasting time is extremely expensive. So decisions over debate is my personal mantra for how I try to manage my time. You talked about that you knew the difference between what you could get out of an accelerator or what an accelerator is and what it is not. What was that to you? I think that uh, something is, uh, Accelerator is, is a network. So, you know, for instance, Y Combinator, you get taught certain things in the program, but the network of other entrepreneurs who have gone through the program, there's a rich network here in LA. There's a rich network in New York. There's a network all over the world, basically. Um, and that's really important. Um, so it is a network. It is also underrated aspect of an accelerator is it is a period of time where, where you have the social pressure to focus entirely on your business. So if you've got whether you've got a screaming kid at home or you've got, you know, a husband who thinks you should be, or a wife that thinks you should be pursuing a more stable career, whatever you've got, the three months or four months in Accelerator is a time where you tell the whole world, like, I'm going to focus on my business now. That's underrated. That is so hard actually to achieve in normal life. Um, What it is not, it is not, you know, a magic solution to product (laughs) market fit, et cetera. It is not going to solve your sales. Um, It is not going to give you a better idea. There's no magic fix for that stuff. Do you think if you weren't in Y Combinator, it would have been harder to raise a Series A or future money? I think that if we were in, if we hadn't gone through Y Combinator, it would have been harder to raise a seed round. Mm-hmm. I don't think it affected our Series A, but our but how we raised our seed round affected our Series A. Um, so it's like basically it's the it affected the very beginning, and then I think it has less and less, less effect as we go. But unequivocally had an effect on the way we raised our seed round, um, the types of investors who were paying attention, the speed with which it went, the pressure of the timeline of demo day and different stuff. But after that, after we got great investors involved and started building a real company. I feel like since then, less and less effect. 
It's so interesting. So you think in order to get a seed round, being a part of an accelerator, applying to be part of an accelerator is potentially a really smart decision to do that? I think if you don't have a network of your own to start, uh, then my answer is yes. If you do, then I would say you can give it a harder think. And and the reason I phrase it that way, it, it just it's just about the speed and the amount of people you meet because fundraising is a gauntlet. Fundraising is like sales, but you're selling your company and you're literally selling a piece of your company, just in case you don't know how the process works. And I think that um, it's a gauntlet. So just like any sales process, would you rather meet 10 prospects over the course of 10 months or 100 prospects over the course of two months? Your likelihood goes up mathematically and the network helps. So I think from that perspective, yes. If you are a third time founder or you, you know, come from, you're born and raised in New York City and you, and you went to school with a bunch of investors or something. I don't know, like maybe that's a different mental calculus for you. That wasn't me. I, like I'm, I'm, I didn't have that life path. I've heard that from a lot of people that an accelerator is the most accelerated way to build a network. I have heard that time and time again. I'm curious, what would you say your superpower is? My superpower, I think, is um, staying calm and humorous in in any situation. I use a sense of humor at work a lot. I'm like a strong proponent that business doesn't have to be a like humorless, super serious, like are you being professional or not kind of environment. And I think that I can stay humorous whether the circumstance is like, you know, someone coming into my office and announcing like we just lost, you know, a massive order or someone coming into my office and saying there's a global pandemic or <laughs> like so what it's just like day after day running a business, it's like one one thing after another. And I think that keeping a sense of humor through all of that and staying positive is is my superpower. So being that you're in the packaging business for physical goods yeah. and with what's going on in our world right now, I imagine Lumi's been really affected by that because you're, the brands that you work with have been really affected by that. How has your company needed to shift, pivot, change? How have you kept up company more? All the things. Tell us what you can tell us about that. It's been a crazy period of time. If you had told me in January or even February um, that I would be running the team remotely, doing Zoom calls for like super serious meetings about like reforecasting the entire year, I would have not believed you. It would, be, it would seem un, un, unimaginable. I think that for us, the, the good news is that the macro trend here is that people are buying more things online now than ever before, like quite literally. And so, so our brands are experiencing radically different things. I think that the hard part for me as a leader is the triage because we'll have one brand customer, like a customer of ours, who is like doing 3x the amount of business because they ship something that everyone wants in a pandemic, like really great vitamins or uh, something like that. And then we'll have another brand uh, that maybe ships like a high-end fashion good and no one wants it right now. And so they are experiencing a 70% decline in business. So I think from hour to hour, from out, you know, normally I say business is like uh, running a startup is crazy for like from day to day. I think this has transitioned it from hour to hour and sometimes minute to minute. Like one thing, one piece of news is amazing. Another piece of news is like devastating. And then you've got employees and team members who are going through wild things, like people with kids at home, um, people with family members who are getting sick or getting sick themselves. And and you just have to, again, stay somehow, like keep it kind of light to the extent humanly possible. But it's it's really a challenge because, you know, it's like the whole, the whole world is going through it at once. It's not just a team member or a certain geography or a crisis in a certain city. It's everyone. 
everyone you know. One of the hardest things is to know during a crazy pandemic, like, will this factory I'm selecting be there for me, right? So like, if you are like ordering 100,000 boxes, it's a huge financial commitment. And factories are having radical shifts in uptime, like employees at their factories are walking off the job because they're not comfortable or like, you know, certain countries are having restrictions. So it's a crazy time. So Lumi is a networked factory approach, like on the platform, you can buy from one factory and you can easily buy from another factory too. So we have like all your bases covered. We have over 1,200 factories that just make boxes just in the US on the platform like to select from. So So I think as opposed to placing your bet on like, choosing a factory down the street and hoping that they stay open, which is a huge financial commitment. When you sign on with Lumi, you like, we have you covered no matter what. Like, so we are, we have a live uptime tracker. And if a factory goes down, we, we move all the orders over to a uh, completely, you know, a factory that has the complete same capability so that you don't experience any disruption. And I just can't state how that's not the normal way the industry operates, but also it's so critical in a time when, you know, cities are closing, changing rules, uh, workers are not coming to work and all sorts of other crazy things. What would you say for kind of the last question, what would you say is your favorite thing about being the founder and CEO of Lumi? My favorite thing about running a company actually is the adventure part. The fact that every single day is a new unknown to me. That may sound like an exaggeration. It may sound like she's romanticizing it. Like, no, I am not. Like every single day I wake up, I have no idea what's going to happen. I know what my schedule is. I know that I have a one-on-one with someone and I have a customer call and I have a podcast or something else. But outside of that, I, I know for a fact that some crazy thing will also happen. Like, 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 like when I wake up in the morning, I know for a fact that in addition to what's on my calendar, some new piece of information or new global event or new thing with a customer or business or technology will like come at me that is like absolutely unexpected to me. And I think that so many careers are predictable and so many people are in jobs that do, they don't find fulfilling because it's like rote. And I just, I like never, ever feel that way. I like am living a crazy adventure every day. Um, and, and I love that about it. Where can people connect with you further? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Janae. Um, I'm always open to kind of being directly reached out to. And then you can find Lumi um, at Lumi if you're interested in packaging things. Can you spell your name for everybody? Yeah. So they can find you easy? It's at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Janae, G-E-N-E-T. It looks like Jesse Gannett and the Jesse is spelled the boy way. And Jesse, have you been on a podcast before? I have been on podcasts before, but not with you, which I'm excited about. (laughs) I love it. And what is your favorite book and then your favorite tool? Wow. Okay. Um, My favorite book, I think I'm going to go with a classic. I'm going to go with Gone with the Wind. And the title of the book is like in the book, like there's a point where they say like it's Gone with the Wind. And it just, that line gives me shivers because it's talking about a whole way of life was like poof, like gone with the wind, like an entire way of living and life was just like gone with the wind. And I think that in startup land, like you're always, that's always the the thing you're thinking about is like the world is one way one day and the next uh, it's different. So I just, I, I just, I just love that book and I love Scarlet and the whole saga. And then for tools, I, I use this thing called IA Writer. It's like I and then A Writer. It's a tool for like having a really clean writing interface for like journaling or writing. I find myself like always on my laptop. I have a million 
tabs open. I'm like totally victim of being a tab crazy person. And so I, a writer, like if I pop it up, I can have it go full screen and I have to focus on getting my thoughts out. And I just find that to be really, really useful for, for focus. Uh, a book I feel like I got a tremendous amount out of is this book called Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Um, he's one of the authors. He's one of the VCs behind Foundry Group. Venture Deals, you can read it in a weekend. And if you are thinking of raising money, it tells you how the investors raise money, how they think, the way that they think about terms. And he's like a really kind, amazing investor. Brad uh, is. And I, I, I just... I read that book in a weekend and it, and it made me feel like now I'm ready to raise money. Like I understand how this works um, in a way that I think no one else would have told me <laughs> like if I hadn't read this book. So I just really recommend that if you're considering that process. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech. Remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Jesse Janae, the CEO and founder of Lumi. Lumi helps modern brands find and source all of their custom packaging. We're located in Los Angeles, California, and you're listening to Women in Tech. Hi, this is Arlen Hamilton, author of It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. And you're listening to we are LA Tech. I feel so grateful I've had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of Arlen Hamilton's new book, It's About Dan Time. She is one of the most inspiring venture capitalists I've ever come across. Her story from having absolutely nothing and being completely broke to being one of the most influential venture capitalists in the world blows my mind. And her book is insanely well-written. Right when I picked it up, I didn't want to put it down. She teaches me and us how to become the asset, how to be our best selves, and how to be a person that not only creates opportunity for ourselves, but creates an abundance of opportunity for others. I'm so proud to share her book with you, and I hope you'll pick it up. And I know for sure you'll be just as riveted as I was with each page you turned. Get It's About Damn Time at itsaboutdamntime.com. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Community spotlight coordination by Sarah Tran. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.